Welcome to Mind Love, episode 236. Today's episode is all about why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. The longer the time we spend with someone, the the more confident we get about our ability to read them. But the truth is, our confidence scales a lot quicker uh, than our ability to read people's thoughts and feelings. This is work by Nicholas Apley at University of Chicago. And he found that with strangers, we can only correctly read their thoughts and feelings 20% of the time. With friends, it reaches 30%. With spouses, it tops off at 35 So whatever you think your spouse is thinking, two-thirds of the time you're wrong. And this is this actually, to your point, leads to an enormous amount of problems. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. It's a new day, a new episode, and a new opportunity to subscribe to the podcast. You're listening for the first time. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you always know about new episodes. Plus, it makes you one of my favorite people because the more subscribers I have, the more I attract amazing guests to help better serve you. So don't forget to subscribe. Today, I want to share a review from Mighty Maddie 45 who says, This podcast is a divine gift. I'm so grateful for the work you're doing with this podcast. I love the authenticity and connection shared with each guest. There has been so many times that I turn on a random episode and the topic is exactly what I need for my life and my relationships at the time. I've shared specific episodes with many people and suggest this podcast to anyone I feel is open. Your voice is beautiful and you have a soul to match. Thank you again. Maddie. Thank you so much for taking the time. This review was just so heartfelt and meaningful to me. So I'm definitely giving you a virtual hug. And now let's get to it. What if I told you that a lot of what we think we know about relationships is wrong? We have a lot of misconceptions about each other and what it takes to have a good relationship in general. And I'm not just talking about romantic relationships. I'm talking about friendships, colleagues, or even people you just meet. Given that loneliness is rising during a time that we can actually connect easier than ever, it shouldn't really be surprising that we're getting so much wrong. I think one of the hardest parts of committing to self-growth is that awareness isn't compartmentalized. I'm more aware of the present moment and what's affecting me, like my triggers and my emotions, but I'm also more aware of past versions of myself and what I could have done better. But I think my biggest lesson that I've learned from all my relationships, whether they've stayed or they've fallen off, is that relationships are the most important part of life. And sometimes that irrefutable fact slips out of mind and I begin to think that I'm too busy or I don't need anyone else or I'm just fine being alone most of the time. And then I get sucked into work or the busyness of life and I wonder why I'm not doing so well. Every uber successful person that I know is still most proud of their relationships. Relationships have been shown to improve our health and even increase our lifespans. Connection gives us meaning. Giving gives us purpose. Sometimes I wonder if that's what our souls came here to remember. Like, if you go to earth school and get in a human body, will you figure out that the most important part of the world around you is each other? even with all those shiny distractions. So knowing this, 
knowing that good relationships should be our number one goal in life. Isn't it sad that we seem to be moving further away from that goal rather than closer to it? The problem is that relationships are complicated. Or maybe it's more that people are complicated. Or maybe we just never learned how to build meaningful relationships. Or maybe what we have learned is actually wrong. We have all these cliches that are supposed to help us understand each other, like don't judge a book by its cover or opposites attract. But then there are other sayings that seem to say the exact opposite, like first impressions are everything or that birds of a feather flock together. So which is it? Maybe the real lesson is that we shouldn't expect to learn about deeper, meaningful relationships using surface level anecdotes as our guides. So how do we master first impressions? How can we get a feel for someone faster? How can we figure out if someone is being truthful? How can we diffuse arguments faster or resolve conflicts better? Well, that's what we're talking about today. And our guest is Eric Barker. He's the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, which has sold over half a million copies. It was even the subject of a question on Jeopardy. That's how you know you made it big. (laughs) Well, his newest book is Plays Well with Others, and it was just released. So three key things we will learn are surprising facts about lonely people, how we can get better at reading people, and how to catch a liar. Do you love story-driven podcasts? I do, and there's a brand new one that I think you're going to love. It's called You Probably Think the Story's About You. The story just grabs you from the start. It all starts with Brittany, who thinks she's found her soulmate, only to find out things aren't as they seem. So she goes on a mission to find out the truth. And as she digs deeper, she realizes the guy's a master of deception. But here's the thing. As Brittany unravels his lies, she ends up on this journey of self-discovery. She starts to see how her own complicated past with addiction, sisterhood, and deep family bonds all have shaped her. And that's when it hits you. This story isn't really about him at all. It's about Brittany finding herself and learning who she really is. Trust me, you'll be hooked from episode one, wondering where Brittany's path will lead her next. It's a story that'll make you look at your own life and relationships in a whole new way. Seriously, grab your headphones and start from episode one of You Probably Think This Story's About You. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll come out feeling heard and stronger. Listen and follow You Probably Think This Story's About You wherever you listen to podcasts. And now let's welcome Eric Barker to the show. It's great to be here. So what interested you in human behavior and specifically the the science of relationships? Well, relationships, uh, I just was never very good at. (laughs) And so um, my first book, I looked at the maxims behind success. You know, nice guys finish last. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And I looked at social science research to kind of test them and see whether they were true or not. And for my second book, I did say, you know, relationships, geez, really never been my forte. So I see the reader as kind of going along the journey with me because I think I had a lot of misconceptions and wrong ideas, uh, you know, about the, the different areas and the maxims we grew up with around relationships. So when you were doing your research for this, did you know exactly what your book was going to be about beforehand or were you... Uh, kind of unraveling things, and then you're like, okay, this has to be the topic. Oh, I mean, I knew I, it wanted to be about relationships, and I knew uh, you know, pretty early on 
what the the various maxims that I was going to you know stress test or play MythBusters with. But I upfront, no, I I didn't I didn't know what the answers were going to be until I researched them. So it was it was a little stress inducing because usually uh, with my first book, I think I had a much better idea. Uh, you know, having read a lot of the a lot of the research. This, you know, there were plenty of surprises to me because I, I didn't know, uh, you know, until I did the research what the answers would be. So you essentially figured out that a lot of what we think we know about people and relationships is wrong. Yeah, there's a number of different areas where there was some big insights that I wouldn't have predicted. Like, for instance, with loneliness, you know, John Cacioppo was a leading researcher on loneliness for a while. And what he found was that lonely people don't spend any less time uh, with others than non-lonely people do. And what he realized was that loneliness isn't really about not being proximate to people uh, because we've all felt lonely in a crowd. Uh, loneliness is about how you feel about your relationships and whether you think they're meaningful and whether you think you have deep connections there. So just spending time with people or just having a lot of acquaintances, you know, that doesn't really do much to, uh, to address loneliness. We actually need deeper connections. We need to feel like they are strong. That's what, you know, really addresses the issue of loneliness. I was actually surprised by that finding too. I read it and Honestly, loneliness has been something that I've felt my whole life, even in a room full of people. And I'm an overanalyzer. And so I've taken this back to, well, I moved a lot as a kid and I was an only child or I don't know, all sorts of things, just kind of being an introverted extrovert. Like It's like I, any, whatever stage I'm in, I find a new pocket of maybe that's why I am the way I am. But that makes a lot of sense that it's more about feeling connected to someone rather than if you're just around people or not. But what does that mean? What did you find out about where that feeling of connectedness comes from? How come some people, like, or from the outside, it looks like two groups might have the exact same relationship connections, but one person feels feels connected to them while the other person doesn't when everything else sort of seems the same what creates that feeling of being connected well it's you know it's our, it's a subjective experience so like loneliness isn't something that we can you know uh, evaluate by by anything really external you know if even if you have a good connection with people if you perceive that you don't then you're going to to feel lo- you're going to feel lonely so it's really that issue of the one subjective perception. Because when you look at the research on loneliness, you know, it's correlated with pretty much every medical malady that you can imagine. However, and this, is, this was uh, something that Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General of the United States, wrote. He said that solitude is actually has many positive benefits to it. So it's really interesting to think about, well, what's the difference between loneliness and solitude? You know, both of them involve you know, some level of isolation or separation from other people. And again, it's that issue of how you perceive it. If you perceive that my relationships are good, then it's solitude. It's time away. It's me time. It's a break. And if you perceive your relationships are bad, then the same exact situation, indistinguishable if you saw it, you know, from in a documentary or something physically, you know, it would be terrible. It'd be bad for you. What happens is that, you know, at a very fundamental level, you know, we're, we are social creatures. When you put people in an MRI, you know, neuroscience research shows that when we feel lonely, our brains scan for threats three times as fast. You know, that basically 
our brains realize like we don't have support, we don't have help. And if things go wrong, nobody's looking out for us. And so it's, you know, it's a very high stress level. Loneliness is the stress hormone increase caused by loneliness is effectively that of what you'd experience during a physical assault. So loneliness is like getting punched in the face. You know, we need to feel that we have those connections with people. And I get into that in the friendship chapter that it's really great to think about all the things Dale Carnegie talks about making friends. But what Dale Carnegie talked about was the beginning of relationship. What we need to do is deepen those relationships. And that involves more costly signals, uh, two of which are time and vulnerability because we can't really fake those. You know, time is, is, when you make time for someone, you can only do that for so many people, you only so many hours in a day. And vulnerability is opening up and sharing things that might be scary or might make you look bad. And that's a strong signal that you care about someone. When we've done these things for people and people have done them for us, those are strong, powerful signals that someone cares and that we care about someone. It's so interesting how vulnerability, just the idea in general, at least for me, has evolved over the years. I, I've always kind of been an oversharer. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, a good thing or a bad thing at this point. It really depends who you're talking to. <laughs> but I've just always been the type that's like, I'm going through something and I, I reach out for help. I The last couple of weeks have been really difficult for me because my dog of 15 years died. And I thought I was kind of prepared because he's been deteriorating a little bit in the last year. But when it happened, I... I wasn't. And I was like, okay, well, I have been saying for years, I mean, it's going to be so interesting the next like time I experience grief because I've experienced it a lot in my 20s, but I had no tools to experience it or no tools to really deal with it in a healthy way back then. And I did all the wrong things. And a lot of this podcast is about kind of climbing out of that. And so it was funny because when grief hit me this time, I was like, what a silly thing to say that I'm excited for my next grief so I can see how I handle it. And I found myself just kind of reaching out to people and being like, how did you deal with this? Whatever. And I, and I thought a lot about it and I'm like, is this considered not strong? Is this what is healthy? Am I like, I don't know, trying to trauma bond with people? <laughs> like, And so what is it about vulnerability? Because I, I know you said in your book that Professor Robert Garfield said that not opening up prolongs minor illnesses and increases the likelihood of a first heart attack. You know I'm all about aligning in every aspect of life, right? Well, that philosophy extends to hiring, too. When it comes to finding the perfect fit for your business, sometimes the best approach is to stop the endless searching and start focusing on alignment. And that's where Indeed comes in. Indeed is like the matchmaker of the hiring world. With millions of job seekers visiting their platform every month, their powerful matching engine is designed to connect you with candidates who truly align with your needs and values. But here's the thing. Indeed isn't just about finding any old match. They're committed to delivering quality. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed provides the highest caliber of candidates compared to other job sites. And that's the kind of alignment I'm talking about. As a busy mom juggling episodes, clients, retreat planning, family life, 
I just don't have time to waste on a drawn out hiring process. And that's why I love Indeed because it streamlines everything from scheduling interviews to screening applicants and messaging potential hires all in one central hub. And the more you use Indeed, the smarter it gets. It learns from your preferences. With over 3.5 million businesses worldwide trusting Indeed to align them with top-notch talent, it's pretty clear that this platform is the real deal. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash MindLove. Just go to Indeed.com slash MindLove right now and support my show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash MindLove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Sometimes I wake up feeling like I hate everything. Like this dark cloud is over my day. And I look to the past and the future and everything feels tainted. Like this is how it's always been. Those type of days used to last months. And now they're pretty few and far between. And they rarely last more than a few hours. But it can still make me feel like a fraud. I'm sharing this because I know that we all carry around these things that make us feel different or less than. But if we keep them bottled up, the shame spirals and creates more problems than that initial thought. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's difficult finding friends or family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. Therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know. It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of you. BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online, so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. What is it about vulnerability? Because I, I know you said in your book that Professor Robert Garfield said that not opening up prolongs minor illnesses and increases the likelihood of a first heart attack. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, a, a big part of it comes down to stress. You know, if we can't share what's going on with us to some degree, then we're kind of bottling it up, you know, and Beyond that, like I said, in your relationships, you'll just, you're not going to feel supported. And the reason you're not going to feel supported is probably because you're not being supported. And the reason you're not being supported is because people don't know what's going on with you. If you don't tell people the problems you're having, they can't help. They, you know, they can't offer advice or solace. They can't, you know, offer like real here, take this kind of help. So you're dealing with it all on your own. And so things that could be dealt with, things that could be addressed, you know, the, a good metaphor would be, you know, seeking medical attention. You know, it's like if you're dealing with emotional problems or emotional difficulties, you don't share them with anybody. You might subsequently feel like, oh, geez, I, you know, I just don't really feel that close to people. And it's like, yeah, well, you're not telling them about the most difficult things you're dealing with. So that's really stressful. Like I said, loneliness, you know, boosts those hormones up to a crazy level, you know, and you know, you're all of a sudden, you know, when you do get an infection, when you do have, you know, complications that might eventually lead to heart disease, it just amplifies it. We need to be able to share these things for our emotional safety. But like I said, when we're feeling lonely, your brain's scanning for threats. Your brain is concerned. It doesn't feel safe. And when we don't feel safe, we're always vigilant. And when you're vigilant 24-7, that's a lot for, <laughs> that's a lot for a human body to deal with. Yeah, I... <laughs> I just had a moment yesterday myself 
I something really minor happened and I could recognize logically how minor this is, but my body was reacting like it was a full-on attack. Like I was definitely in fight or flight. I actually reached out to a friend and I'm like, okay, this really dumb thing happened. I just can't find this thing I'm supposed to return. Like that's how dumb it was. (laughs) It was like a hundred dollar thing, but still it's not that big of a deal. And I'm like, but I'm reacting like the feeling I feel in my body was like this manic stress. Like I wanted to call my husband over and over again. I told my friend it reminded me of that energy like when you're like 17 and you think your boyfriend's cheating on you and he won't answer his phone so you just call 100 times. Like that's what I felt in my body. I'm like, can you talk me down before I like sink to this level? But all it was was that I had like nine different things on my plate including the grief that I was dealing with and being home alone with just a baby for a couple of days on my own. And it really just took sort of saying like a few text messages back and forth to complete, well, and a little bit of marijuana to completely <laughs> calm my nerves. And I was like, wow, it's it's just interesting how depending on what else is going on, one small thing can be perceived in such a different way. And to have the awareness that I have now, it was like an out-of-body experience where I'm like, okay, I know this is crazy, but I just can't stop it. <laughs> no, it's difficult. But getting the text from a friend really helped. And now, you know, if it was something that was going to be ongoing, your friend can check in on you. You know, your friend knows about these things. Or your friend can even anticipate, you know, if there are stressful, you know, similar things, analogous situations, they might know, oh, this this might be hard on her. You know, these are the kind of invisible things, the support that friendship offers. And, you know, friendship makes us happier than any other relationship. You know, it's, it's, this is work by Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman. You know, it's like even within a marriage, uh, it's the friendship aspect that is so critical. We need our, you know, we need friends to be there. And for moments like this, it's great, but then you can also take it to the next level. A 2020 study showed that, you know, if you have five friends, that's great. It's, it's super helpful. But what's even better is when those five friends know each other because now those people can talk, those people co- can coordinate their support to help you. And that, ta- that adds a level of synergy. So we don't just need friends at times. It's even better if we have a community. Oh, maybe that's where I've steered wrong. I've always moved so often that none of my friends really know each other. <laughs> and so it's always been like, okay, I'm having this thing and I'm going to invite people. No, nobody knows each other. Can you fly across the country? <laughs> but you you mentioned marriage and that reminds me of another finding in your book that was really interesting to me as a married person. <laughs> but you talked about how one of the things that helps with marriage is understanding that it's regulation in a in your arguments rather than actually resolving the conflict. Can you talk about that? Yeah. This is a work by John Gottman, who's the leading researcher on uh, love and marriage. And basically, he realized that 69% of the ongoing arguments that couples have never get resolved. And, you know, I, a lot of people hear that and immediately find it depressing. But that, that stat was true of happy couples and unhappy couples. You know, is that there are some things you're, you're just never going to, you know, couples can be different religions. They can have different politics. They can have like, you know, deep, Deep-rooted, serious things that aren't going to change, and 
you know, but that doesn't mean that you don't love each other. It doesn't mean that the relationship can't work. It's just when people focus on, we have to resolve this, you know, that can take it to another level where it gets antagonistic. But to actually talk about it, to discuss it, to open up about it, to understand where it comes from, you know, it's really important to, to discuss it, but to realize that you just need to regulate the conflict, not necessarily to resolve the conflict, because you're not going to agree on everything. And feeling like you have to, like, bury this, it's just not going to happen. You know, even with happy couples, you know, it's an unreasonable standard we're setting ourselves to. But we do need to communicate about it because what you see is that 40% of divorces, yes, those are caused by yelling and screaming matches, but the majority of divorces aren't caused by yelling and screaming matches. They end because people aren't talking. They aren't communicating. It's, it's not yelling and screaming often that precedes divorce. It's people living parallel lives. It's when you think you know what they're going to say so you don't bother to raise the issue. So it never gets regulated or resolved in any form. And eventually you just grow further and further apart until it snaps. So having differences is fine. It's just the issue of, like you said, you have to regulate them, understand where they're coming from. And maybe there's a way that you can find how your perspective and their perspective can both be honored. You know, it might be a lot simpler than you think, but you need to, you need to communicate without trying to like, we have to end this. I, when I read the word regulation, the first thing that came to my mind was self-regulation. And I'm just reminded of a lot of the arguments that come up with my relationship is like what I remember about them are rarely about the actual argument. It's about how I handled it. So it's really saying exactly what you're saying because there were times when I was younger where, you know, you know somebody so intimately and if you're in the heat of a moment, you know what comment to say that's going to like really bite them, you know? (laughs) And I think that's what I've really worked on over the years that's led to this relationship that I have now is is so often my focus in the argument now is like, okay, yeah, I could say the perfect thing that would really drill in my point and hurt him a little bit, but I'm going to just take a deep breath and like observe these thoughts instead. <laughs> and so a lot of it's just about kind of self-regulation and not saying stupid things when you're in an emotional state. No, I mean, and when Gottman looked at the things which most often lead to divorce, and he found four of them, he calls them the four horsemen, they lead to divorce 83.3% of the time. I mean, the truth is you could look at them, all four of them, potentially as failures of self-regulation. And those were criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. You know, criticism is when you take an issue and you personalize it, So instead of saying you didn't take out the trash, it's you didn't take out the trash because you're a lazy dummy. Defensiveness is when your spouse raises an issue and instead of addressing it, you immediately fire back with, you know, an issue that that you have with them, which just escalates it. Stonewalling is when a partner, you know, raises an issue and you just shut down and, you know, really stop reacting or engaging. And contempt is when you just see your partner as being on a lower plane than you. And all four of those can be seen as a failure of of self-regulation, not keeping it about the issue at hand, you know, not addressing like what the other person actually raised, you know, continuing to interact even when you feel a little overwhelmed by what's happening and continuing to see your partner as as the person you love, not like an enemy in some zero-sum, you know, engagement. It's really critical because just like you said, it's like if you just unleash you're going to make the greatest speech you'll ever regret. 
you need to realize that, I mean, first and foremost, we need to realize that we might be wrong. But another great piece of advice that uh, Elaine de Baton mentioned is, uh, is just treating the other person like they're a child. Because it now, not in the way that you might be condescending to a child, but in the sense that if a child yells, screams, calls us names, we don't yell, scream, and call names back, or at least not immediately. We give them a wider berth. We, we accept that they might not have control, and we give them you know, a little bit more patience, a little bit more compassion than we might an adult, because an adult we feel should be in control. So you know, to your point, it's great if we can practice self-regulation. It's even better if we can also hold ourselves to a higher standard than we hold the other person to. Because if we give them the patience that we often give a temperamental child, we, we can really focus on the conflict at hand and resolve it rather than just you know escalating the emotions and the shouting. I read an article like seven years ago that said, the title was, Have a Difficult Boss? Pretend They're a Giant Toddler. And I remember the title word for word because it's come up so much since then because I did have a really difficult boss. But it's funny because like six months ago, my husband actually said he does that with me. <laughs> but I, I feel like that's one of the things we do in our relationship, and I've talked about it a lot on different episodes on this show, is that we give each other grace in an emotional state and realize that what that person is saying or doing doesn't isn't necessarily what they mean or isn't necessarily personal even. And so to just kind of breathe through it and like let the moment pass rather than firing back and meeting them at the emotional state and then escalating their emotions, escalating your emotions and it just keeps rising and then before you know it you've said things that neither of you can go back on. But instead just be like, "Oh, wow, that that was hurtful. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, take some space and it's so much easier for whoever feels so so compelled to do so to go and apologize after that because you didn't really let it get that much higher. But it reminds me of how in a relationship, so often we feel like, well, we know the other person. I know they're doing this on purpose. They're doing this to hurt me. And I think that's one of the things that my husband and I have talked about a lot where it's like, okay, don't automatically assume that the other person's trying to hurt you. Again, give them the benefit of the doubt. And that reminds me of something you said in your book, though, how so often, especially when we're really close to to people, we feel like we know what they're thinking. We feel like we're great at analyzing them. But one of the findings that you brought to us is that we're really not that great at analyzing people at all. Why is that? I mean, we're not mind readers. The thing is, the longer the longer the time we spend with someone, the the more confident we get about our ability to read them. But the truth is, our confidence scales a lot quicker uh, than our ability to read people's thoughts and feelings. This is work by Nicholas Apley at University of Chicago, and he found that with strangers, we can only correctly read their thoughts and feelings twenty percent of the time. With friends, it reaches thirty percent. With spouses, it tops off at thirty-five. So whatever you think your spouse is thinking, two-thirds of the time you're wrong. And this is this actually, to your point, leads to an enormous amount of problems because what Gottman found was that after a while, you know, when the heat and passion and you know just nonstop positive emotions of love start to die down, you know, if we feel like we can't open up, we can't communicate, we can't really talk with our partner about serious issues, then 
what happens is we start filling in the answers ourselves. We start assuming, well, I know what they're going to say. I don't have to ask about that. And that can be really, really dangerous. It can lead to something Gottman calls negative sentiment override, which is basically when the positive bias caused by love starts to flip. When, exactly like you said, where all of a sudden you start to think your spouse is out to get you. You think they're trying to hurt you. And this is basically, you know, this is basically the worst of all possible states. And if you're not out and talking about that, then it's it's really hard to reverse because you're you're not communicating. And like I said, what leads to divorce more often than shouting is not talking at all. So that assumption, that belief that you know what's on their mind, you know what's gonna say is really bad. You've got to say it. You know, you don't want to say it in the heat of the moment, like we talked about. You don't want to name call names or make it about their personal character. But you want to state the issues because if it doesn't get said, people can't hear what you're thinking. And what you're assuming about them, like I said, two-thirds of the time is wrong. So we need to really, not only, it's, it's kind of a cliche to say you need to get to know your partner better, but this is one of the key findings that Gottman found is, is understanding your partner to the point where, you know, not just, oh, you know their coffee or you know, you know, like how they like their coffee or what they like for breakfast, but to the point where, have you ever asked your spouse, what does happiness mean to you? What does love mean to you? What is your definition of marriage? These are tough questions. These are really open, you know, like they're very idiosyncratic, they're very personal. But when you start to hear what your spouse says in response to those questions, that is really powerful. That can answer a lot of the issues of why are we miscommunicating? Because my definition is very different than your definition. And once you get their answers, you're you're kind of getting you're kind of getting the answers to the test. You know, you're kind of getting the sheet codes. You know, you can start to understand, oh, they see it like this, I see it like that. You know, that is really, really powerful. So it's key to not personalize the things and to really just keep communicating through the difficulty rather than making assumptions. You also talk about something called egocentric anchoring. And it seems like we project a lot of our own emotions onto the other person. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You also talk about something called egocentric anchoring, and it seems like we project a lot of our own emotions onto the other person. Absolutely. Egocentric anchoring is when we feel like it's, it's extremely common. Everybody does it to some degree. Uh, it's just that we feel like that other people feel like us. And so that leads into that negativity spiral of where 
if the completion of household chores is to you a sign that someone loves you. And if your spouse sees the completion of household chores as has no special emotional meaning whatsoever, and you've never discussed this, then when he doesn't take out the trash, to you, that's that you're telling me you don't love me. And to him, it's, no, it just means I didn't take out the trash. And when you make the assumption that it means to him what it means to you, you know, talk about it or clarify it, that can be some serious miscommunication because of an assumption that we feel the same way. And it can flip as well. You know, your spouse might attach special emotional, you know, connections and feelings towards certain things. If you haven't discussed that, you're not going to know, you know, how to navigate the minefield and you're going to make mistakes, which you feel like aren't a big deal. And he's going to feel like, no, this, this means she doesn't care about me anymore. So that's why that communication is so important because it, everybody's unique and we don't mind read. So you have to hear from the other person, this is what's important to me. This doesn't really resonate with me. And you can start to honor each other's visions of what's important. But once you know, oh, they're doing this because they didn't think it was important, then you can talk about it. But if you don't talk about it, you're going to make assumptions based on your values and everybody doesn't share our personal values. So we've been talking a lot about these closer interpersonal relationships like marriages or long-term partnerships. But what about newer relationships? What about when you're trying to get a feel for someone? We're living in such an interesting time where we have the internet for the first time in these last few decades than we ever have. And so we're having to deal more often with the idea of figuring out if this is a trustworthy person, figuring out if this information is coming from the right source, figuring out if this person is lying through a screen. And I know the data shows that we're laughably bad at reading people. So what are the ways that you've found that we can actually get better at reading someone? First and foremost, uh, what we can do is we can get motivated. And again, that sounds kind of cliche, but the truth is when you look at those standard stats on reading people, like I said, they're pretty bad. But what you find is that when people on first dates, they actually read people better. Why? Because all of a sudden there's something to be won or lost. There's something, there's stakes Normally, our brain is pretty fuel efficient, which is kind of a euphemism for lazy. You know, we just kind of exist passively. And, but all of a sudden, we shift when there's something to be gained or lost. When something is threatening, they've done, some, they've done a number of actually kind of amusing studies uh, where when people are put in a position where they can watch their spouse interacting with, uh, you know, an attractive member of the opposite sex, wow, people's brains sharpen up real fast. There's a threat. <laughs> So when we have a reason to get motivated, when we feel there's something to be gained, there's something to be lost, when we when you kind of treat it like a game, our skills get better. But the truth is, they don't get that much better. You know, we kind of have a ceiling, there's a threshold on how good we are at reading people. So what we need to do to really get good is to change our strategy. Instead of trying to improve our own skills, we need to focus on making the other person more readable. We need to focus on having the other person send us stronger signals. And we can do this in a number of ways by manipulating context. So for instance, if, if, if you're just sitting there having coffee with someone, they're not going to be sending you very strong signals about who they are. But if this is somebody you don't know, if you were playing a sport with them, you'd see them make decisions. You'd see whether they cheat or not. You'd see whether they cooperate. When we see people involved you know, in how they do things, we can learn a lot more about them. You know, in terms, and it's a lot more honest because all of a sudden they're making decisions. They're not just giving us cheap words. By the same token, 
if we interact with someone in the presence of other people. You know, if you if you only dealt with someone in the presence of their boss, would you feel like you were seeing the whole them? It's like, no. So you want to get them to send stronger signals by talking about more provocative subjects sometimes or more controversial subjects. We can get people to be a little more reactive and give us a little bit more of an honest vision of themselves versus saying, talking about the weather. Those are things which will start to get a person to just give us more, show us more of who they are. These are all things, and that is really powerful in terms of reading people better. I'm just going to start crashing weddings, sit at the bridal party and say, hey, who wants to talk abortion and gun laws? (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. One of the things that happens, though, when we are meeting somebody for the first time We might be slightly better at reading somebody when the stakes are higher, as you said. But we also have that silly thing called confirmation bias. How do we, or bias, how do we make sure that we don't allow confirmation bias to kind of be a filter in our lens of other people? I mean, confirmation bias is something that we're all subject to. This is basically that we feel like we're all pretty good judges and pretty honest and fair and you know we're like a good scientist uh, trying to test a hypothesis and the truth is most of the time our brains don't really work like that most of the time we latch on to a theory pretty quickly and then we seek out things that support our theory and we dismiss or ignore things that don't support our theory and this leads to a lot of problems in interpersonal uh, interactions So what we need to do is be a little bit more aware of the judgments we're making, and we need to kind of step back from them. So the truth is, we start judging people within milliseconds, you know, of meeting people. And what's really crazy is, is unlike, you know, reading the thoughts and feelings of your partner, when we're making, you know, when we're getting first impressions from someone, we're actually pretty good at first impressions. Roughly 70% of the time, our first impressions of someone are accurate. But, you know, that's still a D in school. 30%, you know, error is, is not great. What we need to do is notice the judgments we're making and kind of hold them a little more lightly. You know, imagine that you were, imagine that you were deciding whether somebody gets uh, capital punishment or not. It's like, if you, if, you were, if, you were, if you were deciding that, you would pause a second and you would really think through the judgments you're making as opposed to making snap judgments. No, then, off with all their heads. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and that's what we usually do. You know, oh, they're, oh, they seem mean. I don't like them. And then what happens? What happens is you don't spend any more time with that person. And then what happens? Well, they never get a chance to correct your beliefs. You know, it's like, so all of a sudden, your positive judgments of someone are always going to be more accurate than your negative judgments because a negative judgment you don't spend any time with the person, it can never be corrected. Positive judgment, you spend more time with the person, okay, fine, maybe you do find out they're a jerk or find out that they're a good person. But because they got a second chance, you got a chance to revise your evaluations. So we really need to take a second, realize the judgments we're making, and then we can kind of stress test them. We can say like, okay, wait a second, I'm starting to feel this person might be a jerk. You know, let me ask some questions, uh, you know, and see... And maybe you realize, oh, wow, like as I'm talking to this person, they're telling me they, you know, that they've got a lot going on and they're having a lot of trouble at work. They might be having a bad day, you know, but if you just immediately go, jerk, don't want to deal with them, then you're not going to have a very accurate read on someone. So that is such great advice for when you're, you know, trying to figure out if this person is 
a person you want to spend a lot of time with. But then there's the people that are manipulative or they lie or they present themselves as somebody that they're not really at their core. So what are your tips for getting the truth out of people when they might be putting on a front? The the real issue here is that a lot of what we've heard about detecting lies is completely has no basis in the research. You know, it's usually, you know, the polygraph and other stuff uses stress as an indicator of lies, uh, which has never been shown to work. People can feel stress for a lot of reasons. The liars won't look you in the eye. That's not true either. Uh, they've done a study of convicted psychopaths. They actually look people in the eye more often than average. What does help detect lies is what's called cognitive load. And what that means is that actually telling lies takes a lot of brain power. You know, they have to think through, like, okay, what's the truth? What's the story I want to tell? They have to update that in real time as they say more things. They have to pay attention to whether you're catching on or not. It's actually a lot of brain power to lie well. So what we want to do is increase that even more. We want to make them have to think even harder because if they have to think even harder, they're just like your computer chewing on a hard problem, it's going to slow down, it's going to get wonky. You know, So one way we can do that that's been shown effective in the research is what's called asking unanticipated questions. And what that means, basically with unanticipated questions, uh, they did a study of uh, airport security people. And they actually detect lies at like a 5% rate. But when they asked unanticipated questions, that jumped up to over 55%. And what this is, is basically a liar can only prepare for so much of what you might ask them. So if you ask something that they're not prepared for, they're going to have to think. They're going to have to guess. And then they're going to have to think, oh, well, that, you know, is there some way it's going to trip me up? And I, so if you were a bartender and a person who was underage came into the bar and you said to them, how old are you? They're going to say 21. But if you said to them, what year were you born? They probably didn't think of that in advance. They're going to have to do math. And all of a sudden they're going to slow down and guess what? That's going to be a pretty big tip that they were lying. If somebody says that they were at that meeting yesterday, you could ask them, oh, was Carol wearing that scarf at the meeting? Uh, that's a potential landmine for someone who isn't telling the truth and who wasn't there. When we ask for, when we ask unanticipated questions or questions that they know are verifiable, that can really make it hard for someone to deceive you. I was recently listening to a docu-series podcast about the old phone sex industry, and it was about this specific company. And it was so interesting. It was this whole like like soap opera drama about how this company went down. But the reason I'm bringing it up is one of the ways that they would catch underage people that would call their telephone lines is they would ask unanticipated questions. But they didn't call it that. They just said, we would ask them questions that maybe they wouldn't be prepared for, like what year did you graduate high school or something like that? And so, or what year did you graduate or what year did you graduate college? Something along those lines. And, th and that's what would trip them up. And so yeah, I can see how that would work really well. I remember many years ago, uh, there were, there's just some, there were online forums and one of the online forums was, was women only. And sometimes men would go in there and cause problems or something else, but sometimes their men would go into the forum and, it, you know, it's just, it was just text. This was, you know, the relatively early internet. So how could you tell that this was a man or was a woman? You know, it'd be really hard to verify. And so, you know, they 
developed a system where they would ask the man about, you know, they would ask the person about bra sizes or something else. <laughs> you know, most, <laughs> most men have absolutely no idea anything about this. And again, they, they would generally be revealed pretty quickly. Another thing you talked about uh, in detecting lies was that sometimes being nice is one of the strategies. How so? Uh, because good cop, bad cop has never been shown to work. Uh, when people think you're interrogating them, first of all, they're probably going to shut down, you know. And the issue is that, you know, unanticipated questions is one uh, method you can use. But, you know, one thing you, you want to try if it's something that's, you know, a little bit deeper, a little bit more serious, a little bit harder to tease out, is you want to get more information from the person. You know, you wanted them to talk to you. And by being nice, by being what I call a friendly journalist, you know, just being nice, being pleasant and asking more questions, because Think of, think of it in terms of uh, criminal defense. What does a criminal defense attorney always tell their client? Shut up. Don't say anything. <laughs> Plead the fifth. Don't, don't say yes. Don't say no. Don't say anything. Because any information could be contradicted, could come up later. You don't want to give them anything. And that's very good advice from a criminal defense attorney. So if you are dealing with someone you think is a liar, you want to get them to say as much as humanly possible. Because if they start saying... Oh, I was there. Oh, I dealt with. Now, all of a sudden, you can check those things. Some of those things might be verifiable. They might say something later that contradicts it. You want to get a, a potential liar talking as much as humanly possible. And before you do start asking them questions in a friendly way, uh, you want to do as much research about the relevant issue at hand. Because the more you know up front and the more you get them talking, you can start to realize hey, wait a second, this isn't what the other people told me about what happened that day. You, you can catch them in contradiction. And then later you can use another technique that has been shown to work, which is called strategic use of evidence, which is you, get, you do your homework up front, you get them talking, and then you start presenting the evidence that you found. Well, wait a second, you, know, you said you were with Gary yesterday. That's, that's interesting because Gary's been in France all week. You know, it's to have that information up front. Now they have to respond and they might give in or they might try and make up another lie, which starts to dig them even deeper if you've really done your homework. So much of this has to do with, well, it's the way we connect with people. But I feel like that comes down to empathy in a lot of cases. And one of the studies that you cited was a 2010 study of over 14,000 college students that noted a 40% decline in empathy in the past few decades. And another study that found that the narcissism personality index increased by almost 50% between 1990 and 2006. And when I was reading this, I was reminded of, I'm interviewing somebody coming up about how she wrote a whole book that links Facebook with narcissistic personality disorder and how they're kind of related. But this study that you cited is is 1990 to 2006. 2006 is only like a couple years after, like a year after Facebook really launched. So why do we think that empathy is declining so much if these studies were, or one of them at least, was done even before social media problems? I mean, basically, you know, this a lot of this decline, you know, started a lot earlier. But basically what we're facing is that We've become very, very individualistic. You know, for most of human existence, we were very communal. We had no choice. You know, without a group, we would have died. 
you know, but this has changed over time. It was largely in the 19th century that saw, we saw a big shift where people were able to live on their own. And we all desire autonomy, but we also need community, and that can be a tricky balance. Robert Putnam looked across the, the 20th century where we saw this kind of huge decline in communal activities. You know, basically, when we think about the 1950s, we think about bowling leagues and the Elk Lodge and like all of these kind of things which just seem archaic and dated now. And what he attributed to was television. Basically, we started to develop parasocial relationships, relationships with television characters as kind of a stand-in for actual human beings. And this led to a big decline in all of those group activities. And then it was social media just kind of amplified it because social media feels even more real. It feels like we're interacting with people, but it's basically like replacing, you know, junk food, you know, with a, a real meal. And it's it's been something that we're dealing with because these things, even I don't want to paint, you know, social media as just evil and awful. The real problem is that we only have so much time in a day to socialize. We're, we're going to sleep so much. We're going to spend some time at work. We're going to spend some, some time eating. We have a budget every day for socializing. And if we're spending more of that on Instagram, then we're spending less of it face-to-face. You know, and this is where the real issue is, no matter, because there are studies that have gone back and forth, but I don't think anybody disputes if you are replacing social time with social media, then face-to-face, that's going to lead to some problems. And one of those problems you know, is the issues of empathy. Because what was found was not only do you see that decline in empathy among young people, but you can also see it reversed. How do you see it reversed? You take these kids to a summer camp where they don't have their phones and they have to deal with each other face-to-face and they don't have the options of Facebook and Snapchat. And all of a sudden, empathy levels rise again. You know, so these are things that we're, we're dealing with and it's tricky because these things are easy it's very easy these days, unlike most of you know, human history. It's very easy to be on your own, and we get kind of lazy. But we need those connections, and we need to make the effort and make the time, because otherwise, like I said, we get to that issue of loneliness where we can feel just this hum of anxiety, this unease of unhappiness. And unlike hunger, which we know we need to eat, or tired, we know we need to sleep, when we feel disconnected from others, it's a little blurrier and we, we, we might not always attribute it to the right things. We, we need that connection time and we need to feel like others know us. And that's something that can really only be developed by talking to them. I actually remember in my early 20s, I had just moved out from a place with a roommate, got my own place again. It was just me and my dog. And it's funny because it was actually one of the loneliest times of my life, like that first month. I just watched a lot of TV and I decided to watch the whole series of Lost from like season (laughs) one to the end in like a couple of weeks, which there's a lot of episodes of that. And I was so sad when the series ended because I'm like, these are my only friends. (laughs) So what I'm saying is, do you want to be friends, Eric? Because apparently we all need it. (laughs) Well, it's so funny. It's it's funny what you just said because exactly what you just said has been validated by scientific research. There was a writer's strike in 2008 and Hollywood stopped producing a lot of episodes of new TV shows. Some shows stopped. And when researchers interviewed people, they asked them, like, okay, your, sh- your favorite shows have stopped producing new episodes. And what they found was this, their response by, by viewers was most akin to a romantic breakup. These were their friends. They lost friends. So exactly what you said, you, you are not alone. 
this is how we respond to those situations. Well, at least I'm not alone, alone, and we're all alone together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for all the research you brought to this topic. This whole book was just so fascinating for me. So for listeners that are interested in connecting with you and finding your book, where's the best place for them to connect? If they go to uh, ericbarker.org, which is E-R-I-C-B-A-R-K-E-R.org, uh, that's my blog where uh, I have a newsletter they can sign up for where I put out the latest scientific research on how to live a better life. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 236. Your challenge for this week is to practice some self-regulation. This is probably the most powerful exercise, mindset shift, whatever you want to call it, that I have ever received or understood. And it's that the problem is not with someone else. It's with me. And I get it. A lot of people have problems. So sometimes you can argue that in your head over and over again. But the point is not to sit here and blame yourself for everything. The point is to realize your power. So rather than saying, this person in my life is horrible and they keep doing this to me, figure out where your power lies. Have the courage to look at yourself and decide, in what areas can I be better? In what areas am I instigating? In what areas am I judging someone else, making assumptions about their motives or what they're thinking? Sometimes I've noticed that even when it seems to me that it's so clear that the other person is in the wrong and I'm not at all, even if a huge part of me believes that, when I shift the way I act or think about that person, often their behavior follows. Now, please take this with discernment. I am not talking about if you're in an abusive relationship that you can just keep being nicer and they will stop. No, I'm talking about the everyday conflicts that we all seem to get into, the blame we tend to place, the subconscious attitudes we hold about somebody that they can feel when they interact with us. Sometimes when we change the way that we view a person, that person just seems to follow in the way that they interact with us. I'm not going to promise it works every time, but it does work often. So check yourself. Where are you adding to whatever the situation of conflict or whatever the thing that comes first to mind? What are you adding to that? Really be honest with yourself. Show a lot of self-awareness because without this, you're just giving all your power away. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa or leave a comment right on the show notes page at mindlove.com slash 236. If you'd love to support Mindlove, the best way to do that is by joining Mindlove Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You get accompanied meditations for some of the episodes and other bonuses. You also get a whole backlog of over 50 exclusive premium episodes that are only available for premium members and you get an ad-free listening experience. So that's at mindlove.com slash premium, or you can sign up right in the Apple Podcasts app. My favorite free way to support the show is five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you can't tell, I absolutely love receiving them. It's like it's a glow up for my soul or something. (laughs) And finally, support one of my amazing sponsors. If you use my link or my code, they do decide to sponsor me for longer, which I absolutely love. And you can find all my sponsors at mindlove.com slash sponsors. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time. 
Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.